welcome everybody. Uh, tonight's guest is my friend Dan Dresner, and we're going to be talking about his new book, The Ideas Industry. Dan is a professor of international politics at Tufts University, and he writes regularly three or four times a week? Four. Four times a week for the Washington Post, among other things. So we're going to jump right in, Dan. Tell us what the ideas industry is, and then I'll so questions about it. The, the old term for the ideas industry would be marketplace of ideas. Um, and the notion was, was that, you know, in foreign policy, and I was taught this when I was going to grad school, at least I had this sort of idealized version of it, is that, you know, policymakers are busy people and publics occasionally want to know something about foreign policy. So there is this whole network of academics and think tankers and others who want to opine about proper way to, to think about America's place in the world. Um, and what's happened over the last 20 years or so is that uh, in some ways it's never been a better time to be a foreign policy intellectual, that suddenly there are you know, demands being put on people that, that didn't exist before, and so as a result of this demand for content that there never was before. Um, but my argument in the book is that essentially for, for a marketplace of ideas to function well, you need two kinds of thinkers. You need what I call public intellectuals and what I call thought leaders. Public intellectuals are like Isaiah Berlin's foxes. Um, they are critics. They know a little bit about a lot. They can tell you everything that is wrong with everyone else's idea. They're really good at that. Um, thought leaders are Isaiah Berlin's hedgehogs. They're evangelists. They have one big idea that they think can explain everything in the world. And they will promote that idea to the hilt. It will be used by them to solve everything. Now, a marketplace of ideas that has a rough proportion of these two works well. But if the marketplace of ideas is dominated by public intellectuals, then the barriers to entry are too high. Um, it becomes tough for someone new to introduce a new idea, and as a result, the marketplace gets stagnant, and that's bad because the world is constantly changing. We need constant sort of new ideas out there. That's not good. Um, if, on the other hand, there are a lot of thought leaders and not enough public intellectuals, then the problem is that the barriers to exit are too high, which is to say you might have a vibrant, stimulating marketplace of ideas, but the problem is, is that stupid ideas don't die. Um, and this is not an insignificant problem, particularly in Washington, D.C. Someone can come up with an idea, and if public intellectuals aren't influential enough, they can't critique it properly, or the, even if they do critique it, it won't be listened to, and so as a result, bad things can happen. And essentially what I argue is that what, what's happened over the last 30 years is there's been three kind of factors that have basically stacked the deck in favor of thought leaders at the expense of public intellectuals. Um, one is the erosion of trust and expertise and authority. Um, and I'm sure you're all familiar with the public opinion polling on this, that essentially every major institution in the United States, with the exception of the United States military, has declined in terms of, of public prestige and authority. And as a result, this makes it easier for someone without you know, the proper credentials to you know, introduce themselves as a proper thought leader um, and be taken seriously by certain parts of the public. The second trend is the rise of political polarization. And again, this is something that I don't need to explain to any of you about. Um, but the fact is, is that as political elites have become more and more on either ideological extreme, it turns out that what they want are their own house intellectuals. They don't want to hear heterodox points of view. Um, and so as a result, they're much more likely to want to hear from, let's say, the Dinesh D'Souza's of the world rather than perhaps the David Frum's of the world, at least on the right. Um, and this is potentially problematic because it means that the intellectuals that are rewarded by political elites are the ones who are telling them what they already want to hear. 
And then the last uh, trend, and in some ways the most important, is the rise of economic inequality, um, and particularly wealth inequality. Not in the sense that it has bad socioeconomic effects, although that's not necessarily great, but rather that it has essentially created a new class of plutocrats that has no more money than they know what to do with. And it turns out that what they want to do is to go back to college. But they don't go back to college. What they do is they create their own intellectual salon. Or they go to other intellectual salons. They hopscotch from Davos to South by Southwest to TED to the Milken Global Forum um, and so on and so forth, basically hopnobbing with other plutocrats. Now, to be fair, they're genuinely interested in ideas. If you read any interview with Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or the Koch brothers, they talk about how genuinely interested they are in ideas. And this is an all a thing that is generally to the good. The problem is, is that billionaires have, to some extent, a certain set of political views that might be somewhat distinct from you or I, or from someone who doesn't have a billion dollars, um, in which they tend to think of politics as sort of a faulty piece of code that needs to be hacked somehow or bypassed altogether. Um, and that generally don't think of politics as a naturally conflictual process. And as a result, they are more likely to want to hear thought leaders who tell them that, in fact, these things can be surmounted, when in point of fact, that probably is not necessarily going to be the case. So these changes have led to demands for new intellectuals. And so in that sense, it's really good. The demand has surged. It, it's never been a better time in some ways to be a, a, an intellectual. On the other hand, um, the kinds of intellectuals that are benefiting are different from in the past. And I'm, I'm worried that it's getting out of balance. OK, great. That's an excellent statement of the book's claim. Um, so I have a lot of questions. Let's start off by thought leader versus public intellectual. You and I both write regularly for the public. Just so I understand terms, what are we? I think I'm a public intellectual on your terms, although I hate that phrase. We are both. Yeah, well, all right, so, so a few things. I definitely things. am not a one-idea person. Right, so let, let's get a few things out of the way. No one likes any of these terms. Okay. All right, no one likes the term public intellectual. No one likes the term thought leader. If I had used opinion leader, no one would like those either. They don't like the term because they don't like the activity. Um, which is to say that the problem is, is what I'm talking about is people who, this is essentially an elite activity, which is part of the issue. You're talking about people that presumably are trying to speak to a, you know, another elite audience, trying to influence policymakers, trying to influence large swaths of the public. Um, and this tends to breed resentment, particularly among, we're in a populist moment, and populists, if anything, are not going to like this, even though most of the populace are elitists themselves. It's very amusing to think of Newt Gingrich, PhD, slash, you know, all of the various enterprises that he has going about him, trying to sell himself as a populist. That's an interesting move on his part. Um, I would just say that we are both public intellectuals, although I will confess that in some ways this book is an act of thought leadership. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm aware of that. Um, um, and, and the truth is, is that, you know, Isaiah Berlin himself said that, that when he came up with the fox and the hedgehog, this doesn't explain everything. But I do think it's a nice sort of first cut way of thinking about okay. things. And so, so, so just to press you on some of the claims to make sure yep. we understand them. So I think it's a great time to be a public intellectual. I mean, for a lot of reasons. There's more demand for ideas in general. There's many more platforms. Um, um, in which to convey ideas. There are a lot more intellectuals that are reaching the public, I think, as a result of these multiple platforms. You focus on the, basically the allocation of public intellectual authority, yep. but who cares if there are, you have a nice list of the, the thought leaders, who cares if Fareed Zakaria, no, he, well, he's, he's a public intellectual too, who, yeah, ca who yeah. cares 
if some big idea person, Bob Kagan, will Bob Kagan is a good example. Who cares if Bob Kagan is doing better off in this environment with his big ideas? As long as, why can't everyone flourish in this in this marketplace? So first of all, I, I, I want to be clear. I mean. It, there's an unfortunate tendency in writing this book to make it make it seem like I was saying public intellectuals good, thought leaders bad, and therefore we, we need to do something. I, so you've read E. H. Carr's Twenty Years Crisis, um, and in some ways I kind of felt like I was I was writing an equivalent of that. In in that book, Carr talks about utopians and realists in terms of foreign policy, and and he's often you know considered a a realist because he bashed utopians but if you read the book carefully his point was that you need both of these kinds of thinkers and the problem was the time he was writing which was 1939 he thought the utopians were too powerful what i am saying is that i think i like the fact that bob kagan has a has a voice he's you know an interesting thinker he's not boring in the slightest he he has interesting things to say i think there can be quality thought leaders um, my concern is whether the entire deck is stacked in favor of thought leaders as opposed to public intellectuals. Um, because if that happens, then these people can promote these ideas, and there's never any critique of them. Essentially, they, they get to give a TED Talk without any discussant. Um, and that's my problem. I like TED Talks. I think they're a great, effective way of, of communicating. I want TED Talks with a five-minute rebuttal after that. Um, because the TED Talks always end with a standing ovation. Everyone thinks, oh my god, my world has changed. And it's worth pointing out that even if the idea is quality, even if it's a good idea, and the fact is very often these are good ideas, you want, it, you want them to be stress tested. But you don't think, you give some examples in the book of criticisms of um, thought leaders, who they, their ideas end up being trashed eventually, and you don't think that having this extraordinary array of critical platforms allows that betting to go on, even if it's not in the TED Talk? I think the problem, and this is something else I talk in the book, is that, is that uh, oddly enough, because the market has become so big, we now are in a world of superstar economics. And I think that's one of the problematic features of it. On the one hand, what you're talking about is the fact that there's never been more platforms whereby you know, someone can write a medium post that goes viral and somehow they manage to, to hit it big and so forth. And that can happen at, at, at times. But the truth is, is that I think the world of intellectuals is increasingly resembling either the world of entertainment or the world of sports where essentially you have a few top-tier superstars that are bulletproof. They can do whatever they want, they can say whatever they want, and even if they run into the occasional controversy, they will persist over time. In some ways, the most depressing part of this book was the survey where I asked about 400 sort of leading intellectuals, I, I think you were one of the people that got surveyed, um, asking them to name who they thought the most influential people were. And the fact is, is that the list was predictable. In I some ways, come up with three, as I recall. <laughs> That's fair, uh -huh. um, but you know, the, yeah, yeah but, but the list was predictable. And so, in some way, you know, it was. It, I think I, of the top twenty, there was one woman, um, you know, Power. right, exactly. And I and and you know, it was name, you know, it was, it was names you've all heard of: Thomas Friedman, Fried Zakaria, Henry Kissinger, and so forth. And again, I don't mean to say that these people are are worthless. They occasionally produce good ideas, but I actually didn't see anyone that was relatively young or relatively out of the mainstream. And I do think that's a bit problematic. Okay, so let me just ask you, so we've been talking about what I would say is the supply side of ideas. Yep. And most of your book, I think, is about the supply side of ideas and how the supply side gets organized. Mm -hmm. um, but we're talking about foreign policy and I think a bit of national security. Tell us about the demand side. It's ideas for this town, right? Yeah. That's what we're talking about. And is there something about the way this town has changed that is affecting the supply side? So what is the relationship between the supply side and the demand side is what I'm asking. 
Oh, we're on the record, aren't we? Yes, we are. Uh, so, Just in general terms. Yeah, no, so I would say a few things. First of all, there are multiple channels through which I do think intellectuals can influence policy. One is that they actually talk to elite, that elite policymakers read what they write, bring them into the room, you know, hear them, and potentially you know, implement their ideas or act on their ideas. Um, I got to do that once. I was once brought in, uh, you know, to talk about sanctions to a, a cabinet member, and in some ways, it was the kind of it was the academic ideal. You know, it was me and like three other people who didn't know as much about sanctions as I did in a room, and so like I got to actually have a, a two-hour conversation with someone. That doesn't happen all that often, though. Um, the other way, another way, is which is that you're not necessarily influencing the policy principle; you're influencing the staffers, because the staffers influence the right. policy principle, and so that matters a great deal as well. Or there's a third way, which is you influence the public, or Congress through testifying, or or you know other outlets like that. In terms of the way this town has changed, I mean, I would say in as that... It, as it affects the marketplace of ideas. As it affects the marketplace of ideas, I think the polarization is probably the most important way in which it matters. And you can argue that national security and foreign policy was in some ways the last refuge of the sort of bipartisan for, you know, tradition that, that used to be a little more prevalent um, in this town. But even there, you know, you're talking about an almost tribal level of the degree to which uh, people think about foreign policy, and you basically have to pick a team at this point if you want to advance in, in somewhere, and, and that's problematic. So, so conservatives are looking for conservative ideas, right. and, Demer and uh, progressives or liberals are looking for liberal or progressive ideas, but um, that's a factor of polarization. Yeah. But, but, but there are more ideas. So, so what if there are thought leaders, if, if there are huge swaths of public intellectuals and all sorts of others putting out ideas. Is there something about, you, you worry especially about thought leaders, is there yep. something about the demand side in Washington that makes you worry about thought leaders dominating? I mean, is there yep. any reason to think that your thought leaders dominate the discourse of actual decision making here? Yes, um, and, and the reason actually goes back to Alan Blinder about 30 years ago wrote a great book um, called Hardhead Soft Hearts, talking about the role that economists had in terms of influencing foreign policy, uh, in terms of public policy. And he had a great rule in that book, which was Murphy's Law of Economic Advice, which is that when economists don't have a consensus, inevitably the, the economist with the stupidest idea will have the largest influence. Um, and the reason I say, I say this is that essentially people in this town will be drawn to thought leaders, particularly if the thought leader tells them they can have their cake and eat it too. If you can give a message that says, for example, if you cut taxes, the growth will be so large that you won't have to worry about deficits. Or if you scale back in Iraq right now, you know, you will actually, you know, engage in tough love with the Iraqi government. So you'll simultaneously manage to get U.S. troops out and make Iraq more, a more capable state. It's these kinds of, you know, sometimes in politics there are win-win, and particularly in economics there are win-win arguments. But in foreign policy it's much rarer, but you want to hear that kind of message. But is there something about, but, but are, your, are thought leaders inclined, is Bob Kagan inclined, for example, or someone like him inclined to give is there something about that class of people that are inclined to give you can have your cake and eat it too? Yeah, I would say, so I would say, Bob Kagan right now, no. But I would say that thought leaders as a rule tend to be more optimistic and public intellectuals tend to be more critical. The general rule is that public intellectuals, if someone comes up with a new idea, a public intellectual can sort of explain all the myriad ways in which that doesn't work. 
a thought leader almost by definition has to believe in their idea. They have to have supreme confidence that they are absolutely right. And that is infectious. That in and of itself is a, is a, is a tool of power, particularly in this town, which suffers from imposter syndrome all over the place. Um, so if someone comes in saying, I am confident that if we pursue this covert action, the Iranian regime as we know it will end and we will have a democracy there and people will welcome us with open arms. At this point, there's going to be an audience for that kind of argument, even if Iranian experts will tell you that's not how it's going to work. So you talked about this a little bit in the book, but I'd just like you to elaborate a little bit. How does the point you're making now about fragmentation and different groups in Washington wanting to hear what they want to hear, how does that intersect with President Obama's complaint and his actions? He said there's just one idea in town, it's the foreign policy establishment idea, that he spent a lot of time, and as he explained in that famous interview with Jeffrey Goldberg, yep. trying to buck and having a very hard time bucking it. Um, so how does that doesn't seem like there's fragmentation? It seems like that seems like deep state or persistence of institutional outlook. Well, the blob. Like that. that was that was my uh, the blob, yeah, exactly. that was Ben Rhodes's con but, contribution yeah, so to the uh, the this thought. Fragmentation uh, um, thought leader idea intersect with this idea of the blob. I think the Why way to explain what the blob is a little bit more. Right. So the blob was this was a uh, a separate interview that Ben Rhodes gave in the New York Times Magazine. It was a cover story. Um, in which Rhodes sort of disparaged the foreign policy establishment as we know it uh, in Washington, referring to it affectionately as the blob. By the way, someone needs to make T-shirts with the blob on it. I would buy one of those T-shirts. Um, right, exactly. That would be good. Um, I would say in some ways, and I open with the book on this, is that the problem is, is that Obama himself actually felt like, and this is an interesting difference between Obama and Trump to some extent, is that Obama felt like he was imprisoned or constrained by that blob. He thought that, you know, there were certain, you know, ways of thinking about the way that credibility or resolve play out um, in foreign policy crises. I would suggest that, that part of the problem with Obama is that he engaged in a fair amount of revisionist history on what exactly happened in Syria. There's no denying that he bucked the foreign policy consensus when he decided not to, to go forward with the bombing. It kind of forgets the 15 steps that he took to get to that moment in September 2013. And yeah, he walked away at the last minute, so he might think that he's a you know rebel that way. But I think that, that a lot of critics, and even people in the blob would have argued, that's fine. If you didn't think it was worth getting involved in Syria, that's one way of thinking about it. But you don't then make the red line statement. You don't ramp up after the use of chemical weapons. You don't make all of these threatening moves. That was the problem with him. But the more interesting thing, the more interesting part of that interview is where, with Goldberg, is where Obama admits that by going against this consensus, he was taking a political hit. Right. That he actually cared what these people thought in a way that Donald Trump clearly does not. That's true. But let me just press you one more, and then we'll move on to the other yeah. topics. But what I don't understand is how there can be a blob if we have this fragmented, thought leader-led, dominated production of ideas. That seems to me to be incompatible with the idea of a blob, and especially since the blob is a foreign policy establishment. So how do those two ideas fit together? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I mean, I would say, first of all, that there are, <laughs> the answer is, is that in some ways, the, the debate about you know whether to walk away from Syria or not was really a debate about whether or not credibility or resolve matters in international relations, and that's sort of a, that's such a base level debate 
that pretty much everyone, thought leader, Republican intellectual, would have their, their own takeaway opinion on that. I would argue in some ways part of the problem with Obama in particular was be, he got to the point where even people that wouldn't necessarily have wanted to advocate for an escalation in Syria had said, would have said, that's fine, but if you're going to say all of these things up until this moment, there's a point at which you actually have to follow through on it um, or potentially pay the consequences. But also, I would argue that what thought leaders did, what a lot of them did after Syria, was vastly exaggerate what the implications were of Obama's decision on Syria, which is to say, now, you know, by backing down in Syria, we've lost all credibility with North Korea. We've lost all credibility with Russia. We've lost all credibility with China, which is a wild over-exaggeration, I think, of how international relations scholars think about this, but perhaps how some thought leaders in other aspects of the blob might think in this time. Okay, let's switch a little bit. So you go through and you talk about the production of ideas yeah. coming from the academy, think tanks, and the private sector. You're more optimistic about the academy's relevance than I am. Why don't you tell us what your basic take is on on the academy? I don't know if I would say it was optimistic. I said um, more optimistic. More optimistic. Oh, fair enough. Okay. Um, you know, my take is that the problems with the so the the chapters on the academy jump off from uh, an op-ed that Nick Kristof wrote about three years ago now, I think. Um, claiming that, that the academy had no relevance whatsoever. I think it was titled, Professors, We Need You. You know, they're, they're arguing that they were not influential at all in public discourse. And, and the more amusing thing that happened right after that was Christoph found out exactly the extent to which academics were able to use a variety of outlets, including the Washington Post or foreign policy or social media, to tell him exactly how and why he was wrong about this. Um, so, to some extent, this was a demonstration of the Academy's influence, but that said, there was also a degree to which Christoph, you know, clearly touched a nerve, and, and that's because this has been a perennial debate yeah. about the, the degree of the Academy's influence. And I would argue that the problem, the problem that Christoph identified was, well, the, pro the thing is, is that academics don't go on social media enough. They don't write for a wider audience. And that's the one area where I think the world really has changed. I mean, you're talking to someone who... Um, 10 years ago was denied tenure at an institution, and, and ostensibly one of the reasons was is that I was writing for a, a wider audience. I don't think that would have happened now. I, um, I think the, the culture has actually genuinely shifted in the academy. Yeah, I mean, so just to yeah. pause on that, it, it used to be six, seven, eight years ago, an untenured person came into the Harvard Law School, and or at other law schools, you were kind of said, you know, you really shouldn't write on blogs. It's kind of a dangerous move. You have to prove your academic bona fides, et cetera. That's just not said anymore. They're viewed as compliments, and all of our young faculty are uh, on social media one way or another and writing in various forms. So that really is a big challenge. Right. And I think the fact is universities care more. I mean, the word is impact now. Right. You know, you see this in, in the academy. And so I think that, that genuinely has changed. This doesn't mean that all academics are going to be influential. And for that matter, I don't want all academics to aim for impact. Uh, you, you and I both have colleagues that the last thing we want to see them do is try to write for a public audience. That would be bad for them, and it would be bad for the public. Um, a lot of them do, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that said, there are, there are reasons why the Academy has something of a challenge in terms of the modern ideas industry. Um, one is the sort of political, uh, the, the increasing political uniformity in the academy. The fact is the academy has drifted left at the same time that the country has shifted somewhat to the right. Um, and the data on this is, is pretty clear. Now, the, the, there are two problems with this. The first is, is that it's not that, that left academics produce bad research. That's flatly false. The, you know, the, the, 
I, I'm a big fan of peer review. I think by and large the, the research process works. It's not that the research outputs are bad. But it is possible to argue that academics with a certain political bent don't ask questions that might be uncomfortable for their ideology. And so in that sense, it would be nice to see more political heterogeneity in the academy. The second and I think deeper problem is that because the academy is so far to the left, it gives conservatives in particular an easy out to critique academic scholarship. So if academics produce a work saying there is a proliferation of fake news on the right. They just dismiss it, it as being from the pointy-headed left. They will dismiss it as saying, well, that's a typical out-of-touch elitist academic. And they're not necessarily wrong in that accusation, or at least the stereotype now holds up enough so that it, you can't immediately be dismissed. So that's problematic. Yeah. Go ahead. We and then th another related problem, I think, is that increasingly, because the academy is more dominated, I would argue, by public intellectuals than thought leaders, they don't necessarily mesh well with uh, the sort of new philanthropic class. Um, you know, when, when philanthropic capitalists want to donate money, they very often want to create do tanks rather than think tanks. They want to they see action. They want to measure impact immediately the next quarter. And that's not what academics do. We're just not good at that. So, I, well, some, I would say some academics are better than others. So well, you're, so lawfare, I, I grant you, you're a whopping exception, so uh, that's fair. I wasn't going to say that, but I'm glad you did. Um, <laughs> um, I actually, I was, I was giving a talk at UCLA, and someone asked me point blank, can you name, you know, academics that are influential? And I immediately shot back lawfare. I mean that seriously. So let me ask you about that. Um, because how do you, you talk about impact and influence and, you know, on lawfare, we get tons of feedback from people in the government and from all sorts of people, journalists and the like, and we get quoted in places, and that's all nice, and that's one way to measure influence and impact. But I have to say I'm very skeptical that, I'm, I'm more of a materialist about a lot of this stuff, I'm, and you talk about this in the book. Yep. I'm very skeptical about real impact and real influence, and I think it's kind of chimerical. I think it's, and I think it's, let me put it this way, I think it's vainglorious on behalf of the large majority of intellectuals to think that their writing is going to have any material impact on something that happens in this town. So would you agree with that or not? Or I would say, so I would say this is in some ways, as a social scientist, I have to acknowledge that this will be almost impossible to test. And this is a frustrating yeah. aspect of this. So in some ways, again, there's, there's, the ideal test of this is an academic walks into a room with a policy principle and says, you should do X. And the, the policy principle says, you know, I was going to do Y, but you've changed my mind. I'm going to do X. This never happens, never obviously. That, that's like, you know, that, that's one in a million. That said, there are other ways in which academics or public intellectuals, period, influence foreign policy that it is almost impossible to process trace, which is if I write in the Washington Post an argument about sanctions, let's say, I know it might not know, the, the Secretary of the Treasury might not read that. On the other hand, a lower level staffer at Treasury might actually read it, be persuaded by it, put some genesis of that argument, just of that argument, in a memo, and the memo works its way up the chain and actually does have influence. By that point, my role in it has been completely you know, yeah. long, uh, erased, eradicated. But does that mean I don't have influence? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I think I it does. That's, I think that's actually a, probably a, a fairly standard mechanism right. by the way ideas from people like you and me work if they work at Exactly. Out. But the problem is, is that as social scientists, we can't trace that. So we can't trace it, and we can't really know when it's right. happening or whether it's happening or how much it's happening. I and think, I think for the vast majority of people writing, it's not happening. 
I would say, well, all right, the, the, now I'm more optimistic than you. I think there are times where, let me put it this way, the way, the way I think about it is in some ways it's almost like advertising, which is a, a, a disturbing metaphor, but nonetheless true, which is if you keep writing, and I truly do believe this, you keep writing good stuff, eventually it might be the case that nine times out of ten it, you, you make a, you know, you yell and, and it goes into the ether and no one hears you. But eventually, you might actually hit something. And the more that your reputation for that improves, that's where it becomes self-reinforcing, where if you get the reputation of you wrote something and it has an impact, true. suddenly people start reading you again. That's true. And then, that's credibility, right? Yeah, exactly. So how much of, so you talk most, the implicit dichotomy, or, or at least one chapter explicitly, and a lot of the book implicitly is about uh, the role of political scientists in influencing <laughs> foreign policy and yep. their role vis-a-vis -vis economists. But you don't talk much about lawyers, and it <laughs> seems to me that and one of your arguments, I think it's right, is that skills in the academy in certain academic fields for success there don't necessarily translate to the public intellectual sphere. I think that's less true for lawyers, and I also think that there's a, a um, because law informs so much of government action and because law informs so much of policy disputes, I think there's an extraordinary demand for legal commentary, and so I'm just wondering how much your claims about academic influence depend on the particular discipline. And, and, and putting it differently, what do you think about the role of lawyers in, in public <laughs> intellectual? Uh, and you can be as critical as you want. I'll join you. Um, so I, I will say that the chapter on political science and economics was, I, this might sound odd, this was a chapter that surprised me. In the end, I wasn't originally thinking that I was going to write that, but I wound up thinking about it a little more and... Tell about the basic claim. So the basic claim is that I, I, there's a chapter where I talk about the disciplines, and particularly economics and political science. And the point I make is that economists are by and large acknowledged to be far more influential um, in terms of the policymaking world, in terms of the public, than political scientists, which is truly impressive given the massive number of screw-ups that economists have committed over the last decade. I mean, this is truly impressive, you know, on finance, on macroeconomic policy, on, to a lesser extent, trade theory. This is a truly impressive list of obscenity, you know, deleted that they have, have managed to, to commit. And it's not that necessarily political scientists have done better, but we sure haven't done worse um, than, than economists. And that I find interesting. And yet, what's interesting is that the last time economics had this kind of sort of you know, intellectual crisis in the 70s, there was a genuine firmament in terms of sort of a change in attitudes about economists where Keynesian thought sort of got displaced by rational expectations, um, by uh, monetarism, um, and by a whole wave of sort of formal modeling. And that has happened, there's been something of an uptick in behavioral economics since 2008, but by and large, and Danny Roderick made this point very well, um, in a book that he came out with last year, by and large, he acknowledged that economists, when talking to the public, are making the exact same arguments they were making 20 years ago. And that, I do think, is problematic. And the reason I say this is that, you know, but, but nonetheless, they have more influence because I would argue that economists are generally thought of to be more centrist than political scientists. There's no denying political scientists are further to the left as a group than economists are. Um, and economists are able to talk particularly to plutocrats and to benefactors in a way that they like to hear, whereas political scientists can't. Economists have a common normative core of Pareto optimality that is very appealing, and the logic of the invisible hand works very well on people who have managed to take advantage of that. Political scientists, as a lot, they don't like hearing from us, in part because we don't have a normative core, 
We have a lot of different things we want to pursue. Democracy, justice, liberty, order. These are occasionally competing values at times. Um, and furthermore, we're structuralists. We tend- and, and you're committed to, I think, well, I guess economists are as well. I was yeah. going to say to descriptive, positive accounts. No, I think economists are as well, but I, but I think the other- But there's been a move in political science. I mean, the great yeah. normative theorists have kind of been diminished That's, yeah. in political science in a way that I think it's still going on. But I think the other thing is the political scientists traffic in structural explanations. You know, we like to say that things are the way they are because of these macro tectonic forces that you, the individual billionaire, cannot influence. And they don't like hearing that. So um, but in terms of lawyers, I would say that, that, that lawyers do have an advantage. I, they probably have two advantages um, as disciplines. The first is, is that I don't know what the political you know, allegiance of lawyers are, but I would imagine they are probably not quite to the left as political scientists or sociologists. That would be one potential advantage, which is you're not seen as a creature of the left in, in, in some ways as other academic disciplines are. The second is, is that although legal scholarship is of a particular kind of mode, and I've had to read it at times. Sorry about that. Yeah, but that, but that said, by and large, the, it's written in prose that can be accessible to a lay reader in a way that a political science journal or an economics journal might not be. And so that might make you better placed to write for a wider audience. Right. And, and I think lawyers are trained, trained to make persuasive normative arguments. Right. And... Um, I think that there are literally classes on this, I believe, in law school. Exactly. I could be wrong about that, but yes, exactly. But let me ask you: do you, so you know, the book is you just made this point about the mistakes that are made by economists, the fundamental mistakes. And this was a theme in your book, and it was a theme in Posner's book on public intellectuals, how they blow it all the time. And there's a theme in Tetlock's book <laughs> about public intellectuals. So there's a big theme here, which is that these thought leaders, these famous thought leaders, are constantly getting it wrong. That is a that is, you didn't go quite that yeah, way. Yeah. That's been made by a lot by in, in big books by other people. Right. What does it say about this market that it doesn't seem to provide um, discipline for successful prediction or successful analysis? First of all, is that is that an accurate statement? Um, so why why is it that way? So I would say a few things. The first is is that it's a mostly accurate statement. You're right in the sense of, you know, there are occasional moments where someone makes this big prediction and it turns out they get they they get it wrong and then they have to eat a bug on CNN, or they have to eat a book uh, following the, the British election. Um, th those are a few small examples. But part of it is that, in some ways, there's a distinction between prediction and what public intellectuals and thought leaders are asked to do. Prediction is a very sort of point process. Um, and we know from Tetlock, by the way, that in some ways, thought leaders might do worse at prediction, but they are also more likely to get a big, unusual thing right. Yeah. And so as a result, we tend to pay more attention to those kinds of things. Rather than the right, exactly. So you know, you, all the people who said Donald Trump was going to win the election, you know, who were widely mocked for this prediction in October, have profited as a result of that. Um, and you know, kudos to them. Of course, they're going to get the next five things wrong, but, but that doesn't matter. But the other thing is, is that in some ways, what public intellectuals and thought leaders are asked to do is less point prediction and, inter and more interpretation, which is what the public wants and what policymakers want is explain to me why this is happening. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a little more nuanced than just than just you are wrong here and you are right there. So that's another thing that I think is going on. So what is your so much of the book is a critical analysis of the ideas industry, and you have some interesting prescriptions at the end. What are your what what, what should we do to fix the ideas industry? 
Well, in a macro sense, I'm probably a pessimist because I'm saying, again, that these, these big factors like erosion of trust and authority and polarization and economic inequality. So if we fix those things, we're totally set. Oh, pla it's, yeah. it's clear that this book was written before. I mean, I know you snuck some things about Donald Trump in afterwards. It was clear it was written before because... The bulk of it was written before, because yeah. there were a few sentences there where it looks like trust institutions may be coming up a little bit. And right. there, there was a paragraph where you were slightly optimistic about these things. I would say that that is not... Well, let me put it this way. I actually am slightly optimistic. And so, so in terms of the macro stuff, I might be optimistic. And weirdly, it's because Trump won. Um, because you can argue that we are now facing the biggest natural experiment in American foreign policy imaginable. Um, which, if I wasn't an American, I would just be totally in, overjoyed by because it's just so it's much stuff. Experiment. Yeah, exactly. We can. This we can is observe. a natural experiment. How would you foreign policy without anyone running foreign policy? Basically, yes. In other words, if we if we take people who don't know that much about foreign policy and put them in the White House, what happens as a result? Um, and so, I, I would argue that weirdly, one of the problems that we have in terms of policymaking advice is is the politics of counterfactuals. It is always difficult for us to say you should take this course of action because this other course of action that you do would be so disastrous that you can't imagine it. We've now gone on that course. We are in the darkest timeline um, in that sense. And so one of the interesting things going forward is if this administration implodes in the way that it seems to be doing, you might actually see a moment where we realize, oh, so it turns out that as bad as we thought things were before, it was better than it was now. So there might be a, a, something of a, a greater faith in elites. And just along those lines, yeah. but I want to get back to your prescription. Yeah. I also think that we're learning a lot of things about our how the government functions and about a lot of things that we should have valued more, like right. presidential norms and um, just the, the way that checks and balances work and how important they are. A lot of things that were implicit have become extremely explicit. And I think a lot of the country is much more aware and appreciative, and maybe we'll like to preserve it more going forward. Right. John Stuart Mill has this notion of dead dogma. The, the, you know, he wants constant debate, debate, because without constant debate, ideas get ossified and are sort of taken, accepted as given. You can argue that the one thing that, that Trump's victory has done is that a lot of foreign policy and a lot of political, you know, sort of norms, they were previously accepted as a given and just thought, we do this because we do this. We're now understanding why we do this. Yeah. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing, uh, potentially. Um, I agree with that. I think that's actually a very important point. Right. In terms of, of the sort of modest prescriptions I make in the book, um, one thing I argue is that you know, it would not be bad to have more diversity in terms of you know, who's writing op-ed columns and who's you know, contributing to various journals and, and who's on television. Not because I think diversity is in and of itself um, will automatically lead to more diverse viewpoints. But there might be a correlation, and it might sort of help break this kind of superstar phenomenon that I talk about um, in the book. That is certainly one thing that can happen. A second thing is that more traditional foundations have got to learn that not everything is about immediate impact. Um, you know, it would be nice if they recognized that occasionally it is worth investing for the long term as opposed to just seeing whether if you set up a blog to the number of hits that you get over the next quarter demonstrate that you're generating results. Um, that's something. And then the third thing, and this might clearly be the most naive prescription I make, is self-restraint. Um, that, that to some extent, public intellectuals or, or intellectuals just period like, like you or me need to realize that this is the industry we are now in 
there are certain temptations that come with that. There are certain ways in which the system is set up. Maybe we don't need to write or say everything um, in order to be able to pay the mortgage or things like that. So occasionally demonstrate, you know, that we don't have to opine on everything and that we don't have to fall into the Twitter black hole or, you know, commit all of the myriad intellectual sins that you and I have seen others um, commit. But not ourselves. But not ourselves. We're above that. No, that, that, that I've occasionally probably committed myself. I mean, the last, the last chapter of the book is is uh, in some ways my ability to get, get deal with my self-loathing issues of what, what have I become over the well, last decade. That's actually how I want to close our conversation. Yeah. Let's talk about the last, the last two paragraphs of the book because you say, but you don't answer, so I'm going to press <laughs> There are two ways my story can end. The first is that you become a villain and you become one of these people that you are critical of. And the second way is what you call sustainability. If I believe the arguments I have made in this book are correct, and I need to write a bit less and read and think a bit more, and you talk about a, a track of sustainability. And you close by saying, the temptation to sacrifice the important for the urgent is not unique to policymakers. It lurks in the heart of ambitious intellectuals as well. That is certainly true. And then the last two sentences are, I do not know for sure which way my own story will end, but I have a pretty good idea. So how's it, what's your pretty good idea? Are you going to reveal that, or are you going to keep that to yourself, and we'll have to wait and see? I'm not going to re reveal that in the sense that, uh, you know, I'll probably be wrong, first of all. Um, my hope is, is that I can, uh, that I will wind up on the sustainability path. So I know what my next sort of big project is. And I wrote this book very quickly in some ways. This is, you know, my, my previous book came out three years ago. This came out, this was an unusual book for me in that, you know, Anyone who writes a book know normally this is a, a long, drawn-out process that requires constant revision. As I wrote this one, it was clear, oh, wow, I've been thinking about this stuff a little more than I had realized. It was, it was a very sort of quick write right. and quick revise. Um, I kind of want to go back to the slow writing yeah. thing and, and maybe, you know, so, but it's think hard. about stuff I mean, a I've more. been writing a book for many years now on a topic that has taken me in completely different directions from what I'm used to. And the constant, when you're in the sort of public space world, there's a constant demand in, in areas of your expertise. Yeah. I mean, it's not the right word, temptation. Yes, no, it is to temptation. Weigh in, and it's right. a constant trade off. And I'm really with you on the sustainability point, but it's something you have to really fight for. So I'm looking forward. So, I, I, one of the perks I got, and I think I mentioned this in the book, in February, I got to uh, be in Bellagio, Italy for, for three weeks on a Rockefeller Foundation. You told us the sentence you were editing yes, from Bellagio. Exactly. I recommend everyone do this. Everyone should do this for like, you know, th if you can get four weeks in Bellagio, I highly recommend it. Um, it was a fantastic experience. But I also did something there that, that I think I'm going to try to do at least once a quarter, which is I went off social media. Um, I still wrote the, the, for the post, but I, I didn't look at Facebook, really. I didn't look at, at Twitter all that much. Uh, I didn't look at Twitter at all. I only looked at Facebook periodically. And I actually found that was remarkably cleansing it, it was almost like a like a, a palate cleanser which is not to say that I want to go off permanently I find these tools incredibly useful and there's a reason why I like them but I do f I, I think of it almost as like a reboot um, and so for me I think one of the things I'm going to have to try to do at least once a quarter is just reset my brain in terms of sort of thinking for the long term reading from hard copy rather than reading from a screen 
Um, I always feel fortunate that, I think we talked about this before, that, that you and I came of intellectual age before the internet um, because it, it hardwired certain habits that I think are useful. But there are ways in which constantly being on your phone helped degrade that. Um, and so basically I'm just sort of going to you know, fight against the current in that sense. Increasingly hard to fight against it, but also very important. I'm struggling with the same thing. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dan. That was oh, great. thanks a lot. It was fantastic. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.